This morning, we will be covering the second readings, the second Sunday of readings for Ordinary Time. So, starting with Isaiah 49, 1 through 7, the servant of the Lord, salvation and light to all nations. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me. And he has also made me a secret, a select era. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Next, we have a reading from Psalm 41 through 17, God, my help and my deliverer. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts towards us there is none to be there is none to compare with you if i would declare and speak of them they would be too numerous to count sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired my ears you have opened burnt offering and sin offering you have not required then i said behold I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, 
oh my God, your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my heart. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Now, now for the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, salutation in Paul's faith in the genuine work of Christ in the Corinthians. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. One more. This is John 1, 29 through 51. John's testimony and Jesus calls the first disciples. The next day he saw Jesus coming and the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. 
I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptized in, baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus and Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is, which translates means, which translated means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is Peter. The next day he proposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the, also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. All right, so let's, uh, let's get into out of the church comes the idea of leadership and leadership is a very, very important idea in the New Testament. Um, it's foreshadowed in many ways in, in uh, the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament city, in many ways, is a foreshadowing of the New Testament church. And in the Old Testament city, 
the cities were run by a, a group of men known as the overseers or elders of the city. And that uh, became like the pattern for what the New Testament became because we were the church was to be a city on a hill, a city within the cities, a nation within the nations, a different culture, a different way of life, a different uh, governor, a different lord, um, and so forth. And so um, today we're going to start to look at uh, New Testament leadership terms, uh, functions, and offices. And um, the biggest thing that I want to emphasize, there's, there's kind of a, uh, you know, if, if you look at uh, emphasis zero, Roman numeral one, I put a little bit in from Hebrews 8, 5 and, and Acts 7, 4, which in Acts 7, Stephen is his famous speech that in which he received the wonderful uh, welcome after his speech of being stoned to death. I guess they didn't really... They didn't like his messages even more than some of you don't like mine. Uh, and so, uh, and then Hebrews uh, is also quoting the same passage, and the quotes that they're quoting are, are being take, taken from uh, Exodus chapter, uh, hold on, uh, 25, verses 8, 9, and 40. See to it that you make all things according to the pattern or the model uh, the example that was set to you on the mountain. Right. So, I want to start by mentioning three foundational things about New Testament leadership that we need to understand. If we're going to restore, rediscover and restore biblical leadership in our, in our day and age. And I see my uh, Microsoft little thing uh, that... Ones and twos didn't line up, and I missed that. Uh, so, New Testament leadership terms, that is terms that you read in the New Testament, in the Bible, uh, the Greek words and so forth, are, are always descriptive before they're prescriptive. So what does that mean? Okay. Uh, Catherine actually did a, had an excellent uh, presentation. I hope you didn't miss it at 9.30 this morning about a figure in church history named William Coverdale. Most people do know that there are Christian publishing companies named after Tyndale and Coverdale. And um, so um, one of the things she mentioned, uh, she didn't put the exact verse and so forth, but in Ephesians chapter 4.11, the King James Bible translates the Greek word poimen as a pastor instead of shepherd. Now, that Greek word poimen appears 17 total times in the New Testament, and the other 16 times the King James Bible translates that word as shepherd. Only in Ephesians 4.11 does it use the word pastor. And the reason for that was King James wanted to stop the progress of the Reformation. And words have impact. And so uh, words always have, this is important if you don't know this, you should memorize this if you don't know it, words always have both a connotative and a denotative meaning. We were talking earlier about how because of our finiteness, we would always have some difficulty in, in, in talking, even if it wasn't sin that made it, you know, our selfishness and our pride 
and our fears and all that add to our difficulty in communicating. But even if we didn't have all that, uh, we would still have the fact that you might ha have a different thing in mind when, when a certain word is used than I do. And so one of those differences is that some people are thinking of the denotative meaning, what it etymologically uh, truly means, and uh, other people are thinking of the connotative meaning, what the emotions and, and feeling that you have for the word. So a very good example of this, for instance, is in 1 Corinthians 12.1, where Paul says, concerning spiritual gifts, I would not have you to be ignorant. Now, um, in the time the King James Bible was made, the, it's really the word for A, uh, you know, like an atheist against God, and then the word gnosis. I would not have you be, the word, it's actually the word we get agnostic from. I would not have you be without knowledge, without information. But uh, in the King James time, the denotative meaning of the word ignorant, which just means you don't, haven't studied it. You don't know a lot about that subject. It's not necessarily a negative word. But over time, that word has come to have a great deal of negative connotations in our culture. If I were to say to John Gray, you're ignorant of something, I could be implying a put-down or, or a caustic, uh, not very loving remark. Uh, but what I actually literally just mean is you haven't studied that, and there's not necessarily any negativity to that. Uh, so, uh, more modern translations take that same word in 1 Corinthians 12.1, like the uh, uh, English Standard Version and the NIV and the uh, New American Standard and so forth, and they put, uh, I would not have you be uninformed or unaware, because the connotation of the of uninformed is a much softer connotation. See what I'm saying? And so... Um, that, uh, that actually helps us, on, if you understand what I'm talking about with connotation and denotation, then take that back to Ephesians 4.11. What uh, King James was afraid of is he didn't want people having the connotation of the word shepherd because a shepherd is someone who knows you by name. A shepherd is someone who's been to your house uh, you know, one of the modern phenomena is that if, if you were a Puritan pastor, you would normally have read um, Richard Baxter's uh, excellent book called The Puritan Pastor, and almost all Puritan pastors uh, use that as sort of a discipleship on how to be a pastor. And one of the things that he makes sure he says is that as a pastor, you want to have been to the home of each family in your church at least once a year and sat in their living room and talked about God, the scriptures, prayed, prayed together you know, at the beginning or the end or both of your, of your visit. And, uh, and, you know, Jesus actually says, my sheep I know by name. And so a pastor has the connotation of a guy whose primary qualifications is that he went to a cemetery, I mean a seminary, uh, intentional Freudian slip, of course, and he got a degree 
But it doesn't necessarily mean he has the charismas, that is the gifts, that accompany being a shepherd or teacher, uh, which would include having the kind of love in your heart that, say, John Gray has for people. Uh, It would include knowing the sheep by name. And, um, of course, uh, no shepherd can probably uh, spend as much time with the sheep as what the sheep want. But, you know, like David, uh, when he was called, uh, uh, and Samuel said to Jesse, his father, uh, when, when Jesse told him to bring his sons, they thought, didn't think much of David. He was the youngest son, and so they didn't bring him. He would, they left him tending the sheep. And Samuel kept, one son after another passed before Samuel, and Samuel kept saying, this isn't the one the Lord's anointed to be king of Israel. And finally, Samuel's kind of scratching his head. And like, don't you have any more sons? Like, I, I, I had a clear word from the Lord that God's going to anoint one of your sons to be king of Israel. And I told you to bring all your sons, but they didn't think David was important enough to bring. But what made David qualified is he actually was spending time with the sheep in the fields. And when they were attacked, he rose up and killed the bear and he killed the lion, which was his training and preparation for the battle that he was going to launch his career with in killing Goliath. So, um, in, you know, in terms of New Testament leadership, it's important to understand that New Testament leadership terms are descriptive, not prescriptive. So if you... Uh, are going after this idea of rediscovering the pattern and you come across a New Testament leadership term and you take it as a prescription, uh, that means we need to have X number of each leadership term. You know, episkopos, which the word we get bishop from means overseer. Uh, Presbyteros, which we get Presbyterian from, means overseer. They're normally translated elder. Uh, but it's, uh, they're always used plural, and they are uh, people who have uh, been granted by God to have a little bigger perspective that we need. Uh, probably, you know, certain people who know me have, have, com- have commented, probably my, of all my bad characteristics, probably my best characteristic is I never do anything without counsel, and I know who to go to for what the situation is. And I have pastor friends and businessmen friends and so forth, and I always, you know, consult these people. Of course, David actually calls the scriptures the men of his counsel at one point in Psalm 119. Right? So when we say New Testament leadership terms are descriptive, they're actually describing, so what we tend to try to do is say, well, we have, we have X number of elders we need, and so uh, we try to kind of force someone into that mold, but what's better to do is just use a term that describes what they're gifted to do and what they do. So a lot of times what I actually do is I like, part of what this... Uh, doing this thing with uh, the six guys that are sharing at 9.30, is I'm trying to see who's got a calling on their life to, to do that. 
And after I hear them four, five, six, seven times, I'll start to know. That's really, you know, what we did in the early years with John, Jason, and I. We divided up uh, a couple different books, like First Peter, and did a series. And it was like, you take the first seven verses, then you take verses 8 through 20. We tried to put, you know, the breaks where the paragraphs were. And it became clear that Jason was not a very good public speaker. He was a great administrator, and he was the guy to run the leadership meetings and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, John was a better teacher or public speaker. And, you know, already in just these uh, few times that people have shared, different people like Daniel Williams are standing out as like, wow, he's really good at this. You know? Uh, and so that's kind of like... Uh, why de de descriptive words are, are rather than prescriptive words are is a huge uh, barometer in how you find out what God's doing in your midst. It's not like we try to encourage John Gray to be an encourager or exhorter. That's just a, a description of who he is and what he does. And how he became an elder is he actually just was one already. <laughs> and so we just put a label on what, what it is. Like, if it looks like shoes, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So that's a huge concept. Um, New Testament leadership terms are more functional in the sense of describing or um, describing uh, what the, what the person does than trying to fill a vacancy or an office. Does that make sense? Second term, second thing that's important is they're more charismatic and functional before they're hierarchical. And so a lot of times in today's church, we like hire a pastor from outside because he's been to such and such Bible cemetery and he has a bachelor's or a master's or whatever, but no one has really ever found out, does he regularly lead people to Christ? Like, let's not call a person an evangelist. If, uh, if they don't have all the characteristics, there's one person who's called an evangelist in the New Testament. Does anybody know who that is? Philip, right? So study what Philip does in, say, Acts chapter 8, uh, what became what Philip's daughters did because they were a product of their father's ministry. And uh, then you can kind of begin to get, well, this is what an evangelist does. And so we think of an evangelist as someone who is going and leading people to Christ outside the body. But Ephesians 4.11 tells us that Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to the church to equip the church to do the work of service. So an evangelist actually has a ministry in the church. And uh, one of that, the ministries in the church is that an evangelist equips people to be uh, more fruitful uh, evangelistically. The fact is that we miss doors to share the gospel, don't we? Anybody ever walked away from a situation and realized, oh my goodness, God was opening a door for me to witness to that person, and I missed it, or I chickened out, or something like that, right? Uh, I, would, I always pick on Larry Trimbach, uh, 
with this particular example, he knows that I use it, so and, and uh, so it's okay, been okayed by Larry. But when uh, Larry and I first moved to Dayton together to start the first church we started in Dayton, uh, 1984, uh, Larry was uh, very enthusiastic, if not addicted, to sports magazines. He had like, you know, I know that there's Sports Illustrated and I could probably name two or three other sports magazines, I think. <laughs> I, I know there's like Baseball Weekly, I think, or something like that. I don't actually know what the sports magazines are. But Larry had subscriptions to all of them. And I was challenging Larry to get to read his Bible more and to, and to get to know the scriptures. And he actually picked up on that so well. Larry has actually read the whole Bible every year for more than 30 straight years now. And uh, that's pretty amazing, don't you think? Uh, I think by the time you've read the whole Bible 30 or 40 years in a row, you probably start to get to know the Bible a little bit, right? So, uh, uh, and, um, so Larry decided to um, cancel all his subscriptions to uh, sports magazines, but he actually loved them so much he would just go down the street to the convenience store and buy them anyway for, for a higher price. <laughs> and, uh, and so, um, uh, of course, Larry is very loving uh, very good at evangelism and pastoral kind of things and a very good businessman. So uh, there was a particular young lady who was always behind the counter and he would, you know, buy the magazines from her and chat with her and stuff. And um, one day she, she um, had just gotten like totally reamed out by a rude customer who had just totally said all kind of nasty things and everything. And like Larry was the next person in line and he talks to her like, how's your son doing? Is you, you know? And she goes, you know, everybody else treats me terribly. You're always loving and kind and you're, up, you're always happy and upbeat. And uh, she, she goes, what is it with you? Why, why are you so happy all the time? And he goes, well, I guess I'm just a happy kind of guy. <laughs> and then he left. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I said, Larry, if there was ever a door to share something about Jesus, that was it. And um, um, so we do, we miss, we miss opportunities in front of us all the time. You know, I, I actually can't remember the guy's name, but I read a book once by a guy who uh, led someone to Christ every day. And uh, now, of course, his approach was like getting them to accept the four spiritual laws or something, but still... You know, like you actually have doors open to you to minister to people 10 times more than you think. And an, an evangelist is actually someone who heightens the consciousness of everybody in the church to those opportunities and equips them how to, to be more fruitful with them. So he's not just a person who leads people to Christ. So again, New Testament leadership terms are charismatic and functional. They're raised up by God from within the body. That's why the first principle about them being descriptive is so important because it's not like we're just, that we are trying to get, you know, seven elders and three evangelists and, and get some kind of formula. We, we have to recognize what gifts God is putting in our midst. In New Testament leadership terms are descriptive 
and they're charismatic, and lastly, they're organic before they're organizational. They should always be growing up from within. Now, one of the reasons that's super important is that we don't want to have what's called a head transplant. So, one of the saddest things I ever saw was... uh, um, oh boy, what, what's his name? Uh, his wife died. He was the youth leader at Bethel. Um, he's now world famous. What, the guy who, well, anyway, uh, Nathan, you should know. Who am I? Uh, the guy who used to lead the youth group at Bethel when, when you were like in sixth grade. Jeff Grinnell. Yeah, so uh, there was a brother, Jeff Grinnell, who I learned some things from and, and good brother. And now he's kind of does this on an international level. And, and, uh, but he was uh, a guy, like in most churches, you, when you graduate from seminary, your first job is you become the youth pastor. And you try to hold on to that and put up with it until you get to become a real pastor. <laughs> but Jeff Grinnell was a guy who wanted to stay a youth pastor. Uh, and he's still a youth pastor, even though he's about my age. He's like 60 or whatever, ancient of days. And uh, um, and Jeff had a real uh, gift to, like, he when, uh, when my kids first were coming to Christ, they had a youth group that was 10 or 15 people. And within two or three years of his taking over this youth group, it was a couple hundred people. And the youth group was as big as the rest of the church, and it was way more on fire than the rest of the church. And the, there was like 200 on fire uh, kids that were, say, anywhere from fifth grade to 12th grade. And, um, you know, one of the cool things they had was a Friday night prayer meeting that lasted from 10 p.m. till midnight. And... When Jeff uh, was asked to go pastor a church in Michigan, and he took, uh, oh, 10 or 20 of the most important leaders and what he had built with him, leaving almost no leaders behind, I watched this youth group that he had built to 200 radical on fire kids go to 180, 150, 120, 90, 50, 30, And I can remember going to a Friday night uh, because Carla asked me to go uh, because they were down to about eight people coming to this who were all discouraged. And most of the people who I had formerly known as young people walking with God were back into drugs, sex, rock and roll, and the whole bit and had long left Christ. And, And the thing had fallen apart because... He didn't raise up any leaders from within that he left behind. He took them with him. And they, they spent years trying to find another youth pastor, but they never found one that was as gifted or as uh, anointed, as zealous, as fruitful or whatever. And the thing fell apart, and lots of kids went back to, uh, you know, drugs and whatever and walked away, from, gradually fell away from the Lord. And because Carla was a big part of this thing, uh, 
I... You know, I remember how difficult it was walking with her as her father as she got more and more discouraged as this group was falling apart because they didn't uh, raise up leadership within. They tried what I call a head transplant. A head transplant is when you hire someone new in instead of the head getting pushed out to go plant new churches because the leaders from within are becoming so good at what they do. And uh, that's always been the pattern that, I, that I've done at all the churches that I've uh, started is the people who took over were just as good and, and, and didn't change. It's more important. It's not just that they're the, they don't necessarily have the same gifts. If you were to list, uh, say, the motivational gifts or the leadership gifts or the charismatic gifts, the three major categories of gifts in the New Testament, uh, they aren't necessarily the same gift set, but they have the same values, they have the same vision, they have the same goals, they have the same priorities, because they grew up within the same family and the same vision. Does that make sense? And what we, you know, what kills one movement after another movement after another movement is leaders that move on before they've trained their successors. You know, if you look at some of the big moves in, uh, you know, in our uh, country in, say, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, like Oral Roberts University is still a very strong Christian church, university, and ministry because the son took over the father's ministry quite well. Uh, the same thing happened with the, the two sons of Jerry Falwell. One took over their university. One took over the church, and both continued to move forward after he died and left. Whereas if you look at Coral Ridge Ministries by the excellent leader D. James Kennedy, uh, because he never invested in someone to take, he never did discipleship, the, the thing has fallen apart since he died. Uh, I can still remember the day that he died and uh, getting an email from their ministry about it because I you know, supported the ministry financially and followed it, and, and uh, so did Carla, and Carla came home from school. That day, and I was sitting at my desk working, and... Carla came in from school and said, Dad, are you crying? And I said, yes, Carla, I'm crying. But I was mostly crying because I already knew that there was nobody to keep this thing going. So when we say these three things about descriptive, more than prescriptive, charismatic, more than functional, in organic, more than organizational, we're saying very, very important things. We're saying that we have to raise up and train and equip and release leadership from within. Uh, be, you don't move on without doing that. So many churches are killed because the leader dies or takes another a bigger job somewhere in a more famous church or something like that and takes too much of his team with him instead of leaving a team that the people already know, 
that they grew up with the same values, the same goals, the same, not necessarily the same personalities and gifts, but the same direction. That's huge. So that's point A for today. Point B, we're going to talk about the first various terms uh, over the next few weeks of leadership in the New Testament. And so the first term is the term priest. Now, if you uh, read the Bible at all, you know that the term priest originates in the book of Genesis and is a very prevalent idea throughout the whole Old Testament. And all New Testament ideas about leadership grow out of the practice of how they did leadership in the Old Testament. All of them. And so, priest, uh, I'm going to give us a couple verses about priest. Exodus 19, 5 through 6. You should actually make a note to read Exodus 19, 1 through 6. And realize that this is where, where this happens is after the ten plagues on Egypt... And after Pharaoh lets Israel go, and, and after the Red Sea experience where Pharaoh and his riders were thrown into the sea and so forth, as Israel is traveling in the wilderness, uh, they come to Sinai, and God establishes the next covenant of the Bible called the Mosaic Covenant. And it starts in Exodus 19. And of course, as what we taught in the last few weeks, that no covenant of the Bible gets rid of principles and ideas. It fulfills the principles and ideas. You can't, like Galatians 3 teaches us, once you write a covenant, you can't add or subtract terms from it. So each new unfolding covenant in the Bible fulfills the previous covenants, and the new covenant in Jesus Christ fulfills all the covenants of the Bible up until then. And so the, uh, the, the Sinai covenant, so also called the Mosaic covenant, or the covenant of the law, which follows after uh, the dominion covenant, you know, the eternal covenant, is followed by the Dominion or Creation Covenant, which is followed by the Noahic Covenant, which is followed by the Abrahamic Covenant, which is followed by the Mosaic or Sinai Covenant. In Exodus 19, God is beginning to give Israel the Sinai Covenant. And he reminds them that he chose them. They didn't choose him. Sound familiar? And that he took them out of the bondage they were in in Egypt, and through mighty ten plagues and so forth, he sent them Moses, who is a foreshadowing of Christ, and he sent them the plagues, which is a foreshadowing of Christ destroying sin and death on the cross. And he, uh, Israel starts their journey in, through the wilderness uh, with God to the land of promise, just like we are on and he then concludes, you know, after he said, reminds him, I bore you on eagles' wings, and I did, you know, threw Pharaoh into the sea and all this. And then he says, now then, 
If indeed you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. Some translations say my peculiar treasure. Uh, New King James and Old King James. Uh, Among all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you'll be to me a kingdom of priests. So, uh, the idea of the priesthood of all believers is actually an Old Testament idea. You'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Holy means set apart, uh, special, uh, different, di- differentiated from the nations around them because of why. What was different about Israel? God's presence, God's calling. God's covenant, God's spirit, God's gifted leaders that he sent the people, etc. All kinds of things that set them apart to God that the other peoples didn't have. You'll be a kingdom of priests. These are the words that you'll speak to the sons of Israel. Of course, you know what they responded to their detriment. Joshua 13, 33, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses did not give an inheritance because the Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance as he promised them. Now, the fact that Levi was a, um, one of the 12 tribes and they were the Levitical priesthood does not mean the others weren't priests to God. They were priests in a more defined and special way. Uh, but everyone in Israel was a priest to God. The priesthood of all believers, a doctrine very much restored by the Reformation to the church, uh, was not uh, specific to the New Testament only. Now, um, those ideas are, are quoted by Peter when he's writing his first epistle to, if you notice who his epistle's addressed to, it's addressed to the, to the believers in Christ that come out of Israel that have been scattered from Jerusalem to all sorts of nations in the Roman Empire. And he, in 1 Peter 1, he gives a list of them to Cappadocia, those who are in Cappadocia and in all these different places. Most of the places he's naming are in what was known at that time as Asia Minor. And to us, they are now today known as Turkey. And they were included the regions of Galatia and the Galatian churches and so forth. And Peter is telling these Christians uh, in all these churches that he's writing to that are in many cases, uh, some of which started in Jerusalem and have now been scattered. He's telling them, you're a chosen race. You didn't choose me, I chose you, John 15, 16. A royal priesthood. Kings, royal, priest. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you and so that much of the verse is actually a quote from Exodus nineteen five and six. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him, 
God, who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, that's one of the things priests do. If you look at what priests did in Israel, besides offering sacrifices and so forth, a very important priest verse is down toward the bottom of the page, Ezra 7.10, Ezra was a priest. This is one of my life verses. I would encourage you to consider making it a life verse for yourself. It says, Ezra had set his heart. In other words, he was determined nothing was going to stop him. To set your heart in the Bible that sometimes says like a flint or is saying like, I know there's going to be all kind of obstacles. I know there's going to be time constraints. I know there's kids to feed. I know there's diapers to change. I know there's jobs to be on time for. I know there's finances that need managed. I know that the IRS is going to steal a whole lot of your time by preparation for your taxes, not just stealing your money. They're, they're going to, it's called slavery. And uh, it takes a lot of time out of, from you. Uh, nevertheless, Ezra was basically saying, I'm not going to let all that stop me from uh, studying the law of the Lord, I lost the verse, uh, practicing it, and, a te and teaching his rules and ordinances in Israel. Now compare that to Acts 1, verse 1, where uh, Luke is telling his readers about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Because the biblical pattern is you got to study it, then you got to become it. That you got to, you know, meditate on the word. You got to, you got to digest it. The word has to become flesh. It has to become your attitude, your motivation, your very being. You know, you have to be able to say, like, if somebody says, well, "Where have you been?" You know, you, you know, Nathan looks at me and goes, "You know, did you not know I had to be about my father's business?" <laughs> You know, I and the Father are one. Uh, that's what the, it means to meditate on the Word and to practice it and then to teach it. You know, it's a, think about the boldness of when Paul tells Timothy and uh, Titus and other followers. He says, the things you've learned and seen and heard in me, live this way, practice these things, do these things, and the God of peace will dwell with you. Can you promise that to like your kids or someone you're ministering to? Listen, you, wanna, you want to have the God of peace, the presence of God in your life? Just live how I live. So, again, priest... Uh, Go back to the Old Testament. Here's a definition of priest. The Greek word is hieros. I don't know how to pronounce it. Hieros. And whatever. You can read the Greek word there yourself. Hierotuma. A priest is one who performs the sacerdotal functions or belongs to the priestly order. One who offers sacrifices and in general is busied with sacred rites and is entrusted with teaching the pattern of God's ways, God's covenants, God's laws. In the New Testament epistles, that is the early church usage, a metaphor of Jewish or Gentile Christians 
because purified by the blood of Christ and brought into close intercourse with God, they devote their life to Christ alone, functioning in the roles of the fulfillment of the priesthoods of both Melchizedek and Levite. A New Testament Christian is a Melchizedek and Levite type priest. Not that we belong to that tribe, but we belong to God in Christ, and we do, and we do what they do. We be what they be. So, in the New Testament, all disciples are called to serve as priests under our high priest, Jesus. Like the Levites, we have no inheritance in this world. The Lord is our inheritance. Whenever I read my Old Testament, I love to, like I have these color-coded Bibles, and I have special colors for all the statements about the Levitical priests because they say over and over that Joshua gave the Levitical priests no inheritance. The Lord himself was their inheritance. You know, in Revelation, I love when it says that the Lord comes quickly and his reward is with him. Why? Because his reward is him. You know, the truth is, um, we don't have, you know, I, I hope you're keenly aware of this. I don't mind. I know that I'm a little weird. I don't, I don't fit in this society. And it's not because uh, I'm out of step. It's because this society is out of step. We live in a culture where they don't belong. And um, the more you become what God wants you to become, the more you'll seem weird to this world's ways of thinking, but the more uh, normal you become. Not average, but biblically normal. Like what is actually happening in salvation is you're becoming normal. Which makes you stick out like a sore thumb in this world. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, we are called to offer spiritual sacrifices made acceptable to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This includes our worship, our intercession, our spiritual warfare, and our declarations. The mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. What comes out of our mouths? How much time do you spend with your Christian brothers and sisters not even talking about the Lord at all? You'll talk about whatever's really in your heart. We're called to have God's law written in our hearts as the fabric of our lives, so as to open the eyes of the blind, reconcile the alienated to his community, and teach his ways. You know that if they're not reconciled to the church of Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about Grace Christian Fellowship, but there are churches that are more in tune with the Lord than others. And I hope we can grow us into a church that becomes more in tune with the Lord and more serious about God and more like he would have us to be. 
so that we can come out of mediocrity into the excellence of him who's called us out of darkness into his excellence and light. But as we do, we're actually becoming normal. We're called to teach his ways to everyone. We have this culture in America where what we think evangelism is, is to invite our friends to church and hope the professional people get them saved. I'm going to make sure this sister meets Deanna. Now, I think it's very important to get them on our turf. Inviting them to church is a very important part. But uh, because uh, if, you, if you study John 3 in, in detail, especially the first eight or so verses, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, they have to be born from above, and that happens by the seed of God's presence and God's word, which they're most going to encounter in the midst of God's community. So getting them in, in, on our turf and to live as part of our life on a regular basis is the best thing you could ever do for someone. Because how far they go, people seek, people like a church or dislike a church, they like its leaders or they dislike its leaders by how much they really want of God. And if they sense there's more commitment here than I want, they're not going to like it. It's as simple as that. People want to be around uh, whatever level of of hunger for God they have. Now, let me just kind of conclude, because we're, of course, past the time, but, you know, I'm being told by a lot of people we should just go to 1230 anyway, but the Teresa principle, that was Teresa's idea. Um, Some people say one o'clock, but no. Um, Maybe three. That's the uh, Emmanuel, Emmanuel and Johanna principle. <laughs> let's have two more hours of Bible study. Um, so I want to I talk a little bit about the word priest in the history of Christianity. In the, in the first century, in the time the New Testament was being written, unlike even very fundamentalist conservative ideas that will tell you the Gospel of John was written as late as 90 AD, and so were some of his epistles. There's, I, I don't, I'm not going to get into defending this. I'm glad to do so in the lunchroom afterwards or whatever. But all the books of the New Testament were written before the destruction of Jerusalem, before 70 AD. There's no way, had they, had they been written after that, that they wouldn't have spoken directly about that. And there's lots of other reasons to know that all the books of the, uh, of the New Testament were written within a generation of the resurrection and fulfilling what Jesus said in the Mount Olivet Discourse that all these things will happen to this generation. And the New Testament is about the, the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the taking of the kingdom away from Israel and the building a new kingdom and a new nation and a new way of life and a new people called the church. And the New Testament takes place in that one generation that that happens in. And all the New Testament is written about that. That's the fundamental message of all the New Testament. 
and the Judaizers following after Paul and all that kind of stuff. It's all about that clash between uh, the people of God now under judgment and, and now having the kingdom taken apart, away from them and given to the nation that's going to produce the fruit of it. And that still goes on today. That's why if you study the fundamentalist modernist controversy, the liberal churches are always dying in terms of their numbers and their people and so forth. Because you get away from the authority of God's word and you start ordaining homosexual ministers and basically redefining biblical thinking to be whatever you want God to be and recreating God in your own image, in the image of fallen man, and you'll eat the fruit of it, which is death. The wages of sin is death, not just individually, but corporately. So all, you know, the more liberal the uh, churches get, the more they fall apart financially and numbers-wise and everything else. So um, in the history of the church, it was well understood in that first century that we were a kingdom of priests. Uh, if you study uh, like Hebrews, where it says you've come to Mount Zion and uh, etc., all the things that were said about the people of God in the Old Testament are transferred to the church in the New Testament in specific passages contrary to what dispensationalism erroneously teaches. And so because of that, all believers in the New Testament are now the priest. And all believers are called to do the things priests do. Offer sacrifices to God, which we no longer sacrifice bulls and sheep and so forth, because Christ, our one sacrifice, has been sacrificed once and for all. And the reason we have a call to worship, and the reason it's important to prepare your heart to worship the Lord, is you, like, I remind myself, uh, you know, every time I come to worship with a group of Christians, whether I'm just going over to the Red House to sing some songs or whatever, I remind myself that if I came into a holy God's presence, I would die, except the blood of Jesus washed away my sins and tore the veil from top to bottom, from God to earth, allowing me access to his presence in a way not so much allowing us to go into the Holy of Holies as actually allowing the Holy of Holies to come out to us. Put that in your cap and think about it. But um, so um, we are called, therefore, to, to have a worship that centers in those gospel facts and in the person and being of, of God. What I say, the difference between thanksgiving and praise and worship is worship is when you come into the presence of God and you say, wow. Worship is when you acknowledge his holiness, his majesty. Real worship's all about the attributes of God. The reason why reading a, uh, the knowledge of the holy by A.W. Tozer as a stepping stone into reading a good book on the attributes of God like none greater is it'll take your worship into a whole new dimension and it'll take your obedience into a whole new dimension because it'll open your eyes to who God really is. He's someone a lot more important than you've ever thought he was. Now, 
over time, uh, starting around 90 AD, the, the word episkopos started to be applied to the, to the uh, senior minister in the team of elders who began to be called the bishop. But originally the bishops and the presbyters were a group of people. Uh, there was always one presiding one. We know that because God always has one and many. The, Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, called the doctrine of the one and many, read 1 Corinthians 12. When it talks about the church, it keeps saying one, many, one, many, one, many. Individually, you are given gifts one and for the many. And there's always a head. Every leadership team has a head guy. Uh, every uh, family has a head. That's why every single household has a head in our practice. And, uh, but it's a servant leadership to empower, to equip, to release, to lift up. And gradually, the church started using the term priest uh, in the second and third century uh, to describe what the New Testament calls the overseers and the, the bishops and the deacons. Now, uh, not in such a way that they totally obliterated the idea that each person was a priest, but eventually creating an, an unbiblical clergy-laity distinction. And, and so in lot more of the older traditions that, uh, that reach back to Eastern Orthodoxy and to Roman Catholicism, like Lutheranism and Anglicanism, they call their pastors priests. Now, I don't necessarily have as much exception with that as, as most uh, congregationalist or Presbyterian type of, of people. But in the, in the Bible, there's a, a, a truth called the one and the many. I call it both and, not either or. All truths are held in divine tension. So there is a way to some degree that the, that the uh, elders and leaders function in a priesthood, uh, maybe a little bit more so. But what tends to happen is it tends to become this distinction between clergy and laity where somehow the laity are not as big a priest, but, the, but you are. And so that, that, that one of the important battles of the Reformation was the restoration of an idea called the priesthood of all believers which was not uh, as thoroughly adhered to in the Anglican or Lutheran wings of the Reformation as in the other, re uh, the Reformed traditions and the Presbyterian traditions and the Puritans and, and the Dutch Reformed and all that. And um, unfortunately, some people take a fight over this idea a little too far uh, you know, I, I uh, years ago there were these riots in, uh, was it the 80s? Uh, that the riots were in Los Angeles and there was a particular guy who had been beaten by the police that, uh, that had a lot to do with why the riots broke out. And so they put him on television. His name was Rodney King. And Rodney King said, why can't we all just get along? <laughs> and, uh, and I like Rodney King's general idea. <laughs> So here's what I want to say where we're at. 
Uh, in, in, you know, if I go to, say, uh, Dominion Academy, I call Wayne, my friend Wayne McNamara Father Wayne because that's how their tradition is. I don't have any problem with it. People, other people will go, but Jesus said don't call anyone Father. You know, um, the fact is, uh, you know, John Gray is a father on many levels. You know, he's a father in our church. He's a father to his kids and so forth. And uh, so um, I don't have any problem with, with calling the minister's priest necessarily as long as you're very careful to understand that John Luke is a priest. And if I'm going to uh, be a pastor in John Luke's life and I'm going to try to influence him in any way, I'm primarily going to try to influence him to be a better priest, to do the things that priests do, declare the excellencies of him who called him out of darkness into his marvelous light, uh, lift up the one sacrifice uh, of the one great high priest for all of us of all time, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, to study his word, to study his word so much that he teaches it to everyone in his life including his Panera Bread Pals. Does that make sense? Now, it's worth my going over if, you, if we get this, like the first New Testament leadership team term, that it, it's kind of like a dominoes thing. If you don't get this one, the rest of it's worthless. We're going to be studying uh, elders and other terms like that, and apostles, prophets, shepherds, teachers, and what they all mean in the next few weeks. And every one of them is a priest. And people who aren't apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, if you are in Christ, you are priest melody. Priestess melody, I suppose. And you're called to offer spiritual sacrifices as acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're called to uh, do it, like Ezra, to study it, to teach it both in the church and outside the church to everyone God puts in your life. You're called to be a teacher. You know, what's, what's scary, the reason we have such an emphasis in, uh, in Grace Christian Fellowship is on studying the Word is, is this. When it comes to sports, I'm 63 years old, I'm fat, I'm bald, I'm ugly, my nose has been broken pretty badly, and I, uh, it's okay that I watch basketball and I don't play anymore. But that's never going to be acceptable when it comes to the things of God. You're not called to be a spectator, you're called to be a priest. Put me in coach, I'm ready to play. You're called not to just attend a church. You're called to be the church. And you're called to make disciples. And you're called to do that in a team way. What are your contributions to the team? I, they're more than sitting in a pew and listening to a message once a week. They're more than giving your tithe. They, they involve joining the fasting efforts and the prayer efforts and the evangelism efforts and the serving efforts. And, uh, you know, everything that we do from, from edifying one another 
to reaching out to the, those around us is, is part of our priesthood. And we're called to do that in all the world. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't some special people who do parts of that a little bit more or whatever, but don't ever make the mistake of thinking that someone who's uh, got a title uh, from worship leader to church secretary or whatever is any more of a priest than you are. That, that is like uh, worth going over. That's worth, you're like, I hope that grips you. I hope that becomes like something that you're not just going to say, oh, they went 30 minutes over, so of course now it's five minutes over by the new Teresa rule. But, uh, you know, it's, you know, what's important is that you take that seriously when you're in your kitchen you know, chopping up celery for your stew or whatever. Uh, you are a priest of the Most High God. And you are called to do all the things that all the priests of all the Bible are called to do. With the exception that Jesus, our great high priest, was the real one and only true sacrifice of which the Old Testament sacrifices were a foreshadowing. And we, but we are called to enter into that sacrifice, to enforce that sacrifice, to lift that sacrifice up before the throne of God over and over and over again. Ephesians 3.10, in order that in the ages to come, the mysteries of God might be declared by the church. Like we worship is actually spiritual warfare it's declaring in heavenly places that our God has already won. The, the victory is not the, in the future like modern eschatology. The victory has already been won in Christ. And all we're called to do is spread that victory from sea to shining sea, as the Isaiah reading today said, we're to take it to the coastlands. And we're to claim all the territories, wherever the feet of our, our, our feet tread, you know, at wherever you work, wherever you go to school, at Wright State, you're called to, to carry that victory and put and soon and have God crush Satan under your feet and declare that territory for Jesus and take it for Jesus. Winning one heart after another heart after another heart after another heart to the excellent, wonderful life of Jesus as Lord. Amen.